Ryan prayed about the powerful message that we see. Certainly for me, in looking at the book of Romans, I'm starting to identify some patterns that I feel like I should have seen before. And the way that Paul begins to talk about the the Spirit, as we look at that tonight, and kind of what he looked at, um, or what he began to talk about in the seventh chapter, starting to see all of these patterns emerge in, in, in the other letters, and the consistency is faith building to me. When I mean the patterns, I'm not just talking about similar language, but similar deep concepts. Um, about how we have to suffer in order to get to the kingdom uh, is something that we're going to be talking about tonight. But in in chapter 7, we talked about the law and how the law cannot save because that wasn't the law's purpose. The the law's purpose was to to really to condemn. And we're going to touch on that here in just a bit. So in, in... First Thessalonians 5 and 23, it says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May your whole spirit, soul, and body uh, be kept blameless. Tonight we're going to talk a lot about the spirit. Sometimes with a capital S, and I think we know what that means. But also, we've kind of been talking about the difference. If you look at the end of chapter 7, when he's like, there's this inward part of me that wants to do good, and then there's this other inward part of me that, that is at war. And there's this constant contention within an individual. And so, I, obviously, I, I find that very interesting. And then we start to, to look at the, the soul and the spirit. And what does this mean for us? So, so just as a course of starting the conversation, someone tell me what is the spirit? What is your soul versus what is your spirit? And I don't expect any right answers. I'm just looking for what you think it might be because I don't even know if I spent that much time thinking about what the difference between a soul and a spirit or if this is just part of, uh, of, of imagery that he is using. Okay, okay. So there seems to be a connection, like, and, and as we look tonight about how the Spirit and living by the Spirit and that kind of thing, there seems to be a bit of a connection there to God. To me, I believe the Spirit as we are body, soul, and Spirit. Mm-hmm. And of course, the body is the flesh, which yep. is Satan's And the soul. To me, is the the mind and heart of Spirit that he breathed in us. Now what we do with that is a totally different 
Very good. And I, I, I like that answer, right? And I, once again, I don't think there's like this, it's difficult to, to strictly define that, but I like that definition. You have the body, you have the soul, which is like the, the way that you think and your personality. And then there's this connection, right? The part of God, the spark of God that is within us, in, in my opinion, or the breath of God, like we're kind of told. And I really like that. Why, why do I care, right? Why is this even a question? Because as we look at the end of chapter 7, and as we talk about um, this recap question, I'm going to reread the end of chapter 7, verse 21. I find then a law that evil is present within me. Right? Paul had been talking about the law and how it brings sin and sin brings death. Uh, does that mean the law was at fault? It, it, there's just a lot of philosophical concepts going on right here. And it all boils down to the fact that he says there is something, there, there is an evil that is present with me, the one who wants to do good. For I delight in the law of God, the law of God, I delight in the law, that thing that brings sin and sin that brings death. I delight in the law of God according to that inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so as we exist in our body, there is this constant struggle that is going on. And at the end of the class, we kind of talked about how this was kind of a universal thing. I know it was for me, like this verse has always resonated with me because when I feel like I'm being tempted, when I feel like I stumble, I know that that tends to be a condition that humans find themselves in. Um, uh, Chris, we got a comment over here. Uh, Brad, and so <clears throat> I, I really like this. And I also think um, uh, you, you know, the, the statement, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? And he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think um, I, I like Ryan's description. I think I would have switched the soul and the spirit there. Um, the soul is what God brings in us that is everlasting. The flesh is temporary. Um, the, the soul is the, the, the part of us that God brings in. Said the spirit is the thing that kind of pushes and pulls our behavior, and that um, you know there's a there's a, there can be an evil spirit that moves us. There can be a but there's also the spirit of God that moves us and causes us to want to do His will, and in the, it, which is then counterproductive to the flesh that wants to do its will. And so there is that tension. And I, I just keep coming back to this passage in Ezekiel 36, um, where God says he's going to take out us a heart of stone and put in us a heart of flesh, and he will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart uh, of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. So I feel like that really is the, uh, the spirit behind this kind of spirit. Like something that pushes us and compels.
compels us. It's the ought behind <clears throat> what God's will is for us. And that's God's spirit. If, if, if I was able to give my children my spirit, and I, I said, I want you to have the same spirit that I do. They'd be thinking the things I do. They'd be saying the things I say. They'd be doing the things that I will do. And then the employer wants to put their spirit in their employees uh, to make them do exactly what the employee, what the owner of the company would do. But we all know that's really hard to do because you walk in any right. restaurant and the owner really wants your business, but none of the wait staff really, you know, they're not invested as much. So, um, yeah, that's that's the way I see the spirit pushing and pulling the thoughts. Here. I, I like that analogy, especially about like. Let's just take, for example, work culture, right? Like I, I worked at a smaller company for the past nine years and just really enjoyed it, primarily because the boss was highly employee focused. And he, <laughs> in a sense, the whole place adopted his spirit, right? And there was a lot of cohesion, a, a lot of... Um, collaboration, just a, a lot of trust and all of that kind of thing because they were emulating his ideals. And I do like that because someone had also mentioned that, you know, what role does the Holy Spirit play? And for me, I like this answer because I'm not entirely sure. Like, I do know some of the things that the Holy Spirit does, but the explanation was the Holy Spirit is the thing responsible for changing you, for building you over time. And I love that. I, I, that. For me, that really made sense, that that was the thing that was pushing me to live right. And we're going to talk about that tonight. That's really the argument that Paul is making in chapter 8. And so this recap question was really about if, if this is a universal concept, right? If the feeling of even someone that's not spiritual, someone that's not religious, they have a conscience and that conscience is bothered. Um, I think, how can we use this in order to reach them spiritually? And, and I'll give you kind of an example. Um, think of a time when maybe it was a friend or a family member or a coworker, someone that wasn't necessarily religious, came to you to ask a, a religious question. All right, think about that time. Think about what they were asking, what the scenario was, all of those things. What was it about what was going on that drew them to you? Okay, and I, I love this concluding sentiment, sentiment from, from Paul. And, um, you know, we are told to be ready when people ask us about the hope within us. And I think it's important to recognize um, this idea, what this may look like in other people. So how would you explain the end of this? How can you use this as an as a, as a, uh, evangelistic tool, uh, per se? This, this last part, this really this, oh, wretched man that, that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. How can you use that to reach other people? Is really the essence of that question.
It's a re- really good explanation. It, Jesus is that line in the sand, right? Like, in, and, and Paul is kind of drawing out this argument that without that individual, without that focal point, you are hopeless. Very good. Well, I just see it as the most like, basic, relatable thing mm-hmm. of humanity. Mm-hmm. And so it brings us all on that, down on that same level. If someone's coming to us, we're not boarding anything over them. We're showing them that we all have this problem. We are all sinners. We're all lost <coughs> without Christ. I just think it's the most basic connector. Yep. I like that, right? It, it is, right? Because everyone at some point is going to... That's the level, level playing field. If you, When you feel helpless or when your conscience is bothering you or, or any of that stuff without... Without Jesus is a universal concept. Absolutely. Very good. And, and I like the way that you put that universal currency, if you will, despair and, and self-loathing is, <laughs> is a universal condition um, that, that everyone will experience at, at some point in their life. And, and, um, and I also think, uh, even maybe a bit more specifically, is feeling that contention, that internal contention. Whether or not an individual might look at that as a moral striving or, or what, but you know, there's, there is this kind of um, this soul 
body contention, spirit body contention that is inherent with everyone. And, and I do think that people feel it without maybe being able to recognize it. So as an evangelistic tool, we should learn how to recognize this in people, right? And, and obviously, if someone comes to you as a really good indicator, um, but also learning to, to I think it, it's, it's a natural, we gotta, yeah, uh, a natural thing to, to be there for someone in despair. That, that should be a hallmark of, of Christianity. Uh, is being supportive and being um, encouraging and that kind of thing, and that puts you in the right place to talk to talk about Jesus. Right. Right. Sin is waiting at the door, and it is its desire is for you. That's scary, right? Like that feels much more like being hunted than whoops, the the cards didn't play out in my favor. And I I think that's obviously as you start to look at Paul, and he even talks about the different spiritual realm revelations that he has. The Spirit has given him a lot of insight into what is happening in the spiritual realm. And so he is talking about putting your armor on and living in the Spirit because he is seeing things that are going on in that um, that, uh, that we need to take on faith. So I love these verses and I love his concluding, um, his concluding statement. And this leads us right into chapter 8 where Paul um, describes why we should be thanking Jesus um, because, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Um, Some translations leave that last part out, but it's primarily, like, just the difference in manuscripts, but he on that last part of that is really a, like a summary of what we're going to be talking about uh, anyway. So, um, question number two. Before we get to question number two, I'd like to go ahead and read uh, 1 through 17. Now, I don't want to read that whole thing. Can I get a volunteer to read 1 through 17? Chris, yeah, that would be great. Thank you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did. Sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. 
and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. So then, brother, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, but according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Very good. Thank you. Uh, for reading, reading up uh, all of those verses. So question number two, uh, what did God achieve that the law could not? And there's a lot of layers <laughs> that are going on in, in these particular verses. And we start talking about spirit, capital S, spirit, right? Like in, in terms of the Holy Spirit. Um, but Paul talks about verse three, uh, God achieved what the law could not. What was that? And, and what does that look like? What did verse 7 say that the law couldn't do? Uh, sorry, chapter 7. Say that again. Forgive sin. forgive sin, right? And if it can't forgive sin, then it can't really save. So it said, for God achieved what the law couldn't. Because it was weakened through the flesh, what what did what is he doing? So it mentions the next verse. It mentions the requirement of the law, okay. and that's what God was able to give was what the law required, which was a a punishment or sacrifice or however you want to view that. There had to be some uh, just. Okay, very good. Yeah, we had, I thought we had a hand up somewhere. That was in verse 2, actually. That answered that he set us free from sin. Set us, yep, did. Set us free. And it, so, that once again, this is where we're getting a bunch of layers here, right? Um, set us free from the law of sin, which also frees us from death. He said that the law, it was weakened uh, through the flesh. But then as Chris mentioned, he goes into a little explanation uh, of what's going on. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Remember Paul kind of talking about, wow, my body keeps wanting to do the wrong thing. My spirit, my soul keeps wanting to do the right thing. And so there's something about being in this flesh, something about being in this corruption, um, where, where sin kind of dwells. And so by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and concerning sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. 
so that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us. There's a lot there. I, there is a... Bob, were you going to say, say something? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had a note here. Uh, the answer there was... And we see it happening in, in Acts 2 at the end of the chapter. God made man able to self-condemn. Hmm. In other words, seek his sin and want to fix it. And the law didn't do that. They just made him want to keep the law more. Right. Keep the law more. And finally, it helped Jesus dying on the cross for them. God paying the price turned people's eyes inward to see their faults and shortcomings mm-hmm. and to admit them before God and ask for very good. So that, yeah. that idea of self uh, is something that wasn't there seemingly before. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, very good. Very good. We got him. Also, when he created man, he said, let us make man in our own image. Mm-hmm. So we're made in the image of God. So he manifested himself in the likeness of us so that we could see what it Very good. Uh, that idea of continuing to look more and more like him, hold, hold on to that, because we're going to talk about that, I, and I like that. It, you know, with this idea of him kind of taking on the likeness of Adam, there is some symmetry there, isn't there? And I mean, that's really what Paul was kind of pointing out when he was comparing Adam and Jesus, because there's a symmetry in the sense that, that sin came through the flesh, right, and kind of corrupted everything, and then God came in the form and the likeness of that same flesh where corruption dwelt and defeated it and then was raised, right? Like there is this, in my opinion, this beautiful symmetry in the way that this problem is resolved. And that's the way that God does things, right? Like I'm I'm consistently amazed by just the subtleties of even like when when you think of the emblem stories, I'm not just talking about the symbolism but even the tie back to the Exodus and, and all of that stuff, there, the, the way that God's symmetry works is a very, very beautiful thing. And so, him coming in the likeness of sinful flesh, he then condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us. Us being who do not walk according to the flesh. 
but according to the Spirit. Um, and I think, you know, as Chris mentioned, this, there's some requirement. What, I think I know, but what is that requirement of the law? What does the law require? Probably a rhetorical question, so you can just kind of shout it out. Right? It, it requires perfection, and when there's imperfection, I have to rectify that imperfection. Right? So a payment must be made. And I think that that's where, at least me, that's where I do get this idea of salvation in a much more transactional sense. But what I'm learning is God was the only one that could complete that transaction. I can't. I'm way down here. The whole thing that he put in motion is way up here. Right? So there's no way I can pay like God can pay and like Jesus could pay because he was the one that was in the sinful flesh, the corrupt flesh, and yet committed no sin. Okay. Oh, Alan, Al, sorry. Oh, you made him wait. Okay. In Hebrews 7, 19, the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Mm-hmm. So that's something that shouldn't necessarily have the most strong near to God like we can. That's what makes it the perfect thing and, and such a wonderful thing to introduce to people that we can draw near to God through Christ now in a way that could. I, I like that, right? That the, the law, the law's goal was to, to push away, not not to draw near. And so we have that now. Very good. Yeah. So But without what's her? Without salvation. Gotcha. So, right. Well, if the transgression of law requires death, but if we pay, then we can't be saved. So Interesting. I like that. He, he wants that relationship enough that he's willing to pay on our behalf. Very good. I like that. And he does start to talk about um, th- this concept of being in the flesh and living by the Spirit, we're gonna we're gonna touch on that a bit more too. Yeah. I think the very first chapter gives some idea of what that is. It says there's therefore now no condemnation in Christ. He's saying everything else I've said up to this point included condemnation. Yes. The old law. Yes. Condemnation. And I think there may be two parts to that as well. It's like there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Saying also that the Jews might have thought you can't just do away with that. You know, you're just saying the law was worthless and doing away with it. Therefore, Christians are condemned because they're saying the law is worthless. But Paul has been very clear it's not been worthless. It had a purpose and mm-hmm. served that purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think he ties that in with you can't condemn them that way either, if that makes sense. So it's almost a double, I right. a little bit of a double meaning there. One, they're not condemned anymore because of Christ. And two, we're not condemning them as if they ignored or said the old law was worthless. Good, I hadn't thought of that, right? I like that, that kind of double meaning as to like the, the no condemnation. Um, and that, what a powerful message, too, right? Like, we spend the, the, the whole, or the entirety, most of chapter 8 in exploring this idea of, wow, there's no condemnation in Jesus? Really? Like, the law just felt like pure condemnation. 
That's what it was supposed to feel like. And now, when you feel that that inner man is constantly warring, that feels a lot like condemnation. But who will save me from this body of death? Thank God for Jesus Christ. Because now there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ. Because God was able to fulfill the requirements of the law in the only way that was possible. By meeting that imperfection with perfection. So now we kind of get into uh, a a little bit more about living uh, this idea of the flesh and the spirit. You know, we've established that the law could never save. So God was able to save us by satisfying the law. And Paul was really keyed into this concept. I, I go back to, you know, when he talked about the, the different heavens and things like that that he had seen. And I just, when you look at, um, I was going to read Philippians 2, 1 through 9. We, we know this. God, uh, or Jesus, who had existed in the form of God, did not regard uh, equality with God, emptied himself. It's, it's like kind of a snapshot of everything that had to happen for the requirement of that law to be satisfied. Um, but then even more so, being, being, uh, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't just come and, you know, live a perfect life and then kind of die and sleep, you know, peacefully. And no, it was violent um, and humiliating And as a result, God highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name. Okay. So uh, as we looked back at question number three, uh, what does it mean to be a fleshly being, uh, but not to live by the flesh? Because living by the flesh is death. Living by the spirit is is life. And this is where a lot of layers come through. what does that what does that mean? What does that look like every day? What does that look like to someone that you're trying to teach about Jesus? I mean, we're in the flesh right now. We're going to be in the flesh. There's not in changing that until until we're no longer living. Alan? It's what you set your mind on. It's the difference, you know, flesh it talks about those the works of the flesh and footings talks about things that you set your mind on and things above. The flesh sets its mind on the things beneath. And it's just where your thinking is, where your concentration is, instead of the things of the Spirit. Okay, very good. I, I agree. Uh, uh, the, um, oh, um, as we look at the outlook of the flesh is death, the outlook of the life is fear, that would be really being the, the end, but it is um, how, you're, how you perceive things, how you think of things. Anybody, anybody else? I go back to that concept of when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in, in Matthew 15, and um, uh, no, that's not Matthew 15. Oh, uh, let's see here. Why do your disciples disobey the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. He answered them and said, And why do you disobey the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever insults his father and mother must be put to death. 
But you say if someone tells his mother or father, whatever help you would have received from me is given to God, he doesn't need to honor his father. You have nullified the word of God on account of your tradition. Hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and they worship me in vain, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Then he called to the crowd and said, listen and understand what defiles a person It's not what goes into the mouth, it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, do you know, um, uh, let's see, what would be a better place to come down here? Whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and then passes out into the sewer, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these defile a person. As Alan is kind of talking about it. It's, it's, it's the way that you're perceiving things, the way that you're looking. It boils down to your motivation and your perspective and what is causing you to behave the way that you behave. If I do a good thing for a bad motive, what, what does that make me? I mean, even Paul said, you know, there are people that were teaching Jesus to spite me. You know, and it's like, at least Jesus is being preached. But we are in the flesh, right? And we're going to be in the flesh. What does it look like for us to not live by the flesh? Um, This verse seems to draw more uh, definition around what is flesh and what is spirit. We, We talked about that. I think we're aware of spirit, and so is the audience. But I think this kind of distinction needs to be made because so much time was spent on the law, right? And the following of the law. And when you look at this, they were completely missing the essence, the principles of the law, because they were focused on fleshly things. To the point where they were disobeying a commandment, even though they were trying to do the right thing. Honor your father and mother. Whoever insults his father, father or mother must be put to death. And, but the Pharisees were saying, if someone tells his father or mother, whatever help you would have received from me is given to God. That's a really noble thing, isn't it? Right? Well, I was going to help you. I was going to bring you something, but the priests need it more. Right? And Jesus is saying, no. You have nullified the word of God on account of your tradition. So being in the flesh and living by the spirit, that takes some discernment, doesn't it? It takes some judgment. Um, and so I think that that's why, we got, we got a couple here. I think that that's why Paul is trying to draw this out. He spent so much time in the law that sometimes... That concept was lost on them. Yeah. I think your big Amos reference is perfect because he goes to Jesus and he says, Truly I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, The man is old. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So we have to have two births. We have to be born, we're born into the flesh, but unless we're also born into the Spirit, 
that which is spirit is born into the spirit is spirit, then we cannot enter the kingdom of God. Very and good. so in, it's, it's two births. And so we have to, to move from the flesh into the spirit to become very good. Okay, so that kind of brings the... Uh, wait, there was another comment, right? Someone had another comment? Okay. okay. <laughs> that, uh, well, I'm moving on, so if you got something you want to add... Then. I couldn't agree more. And I, I likewise, as I get older, realize that there were so many times I wanted to face something to prove that I could overcome it. And that's the wrong way to handle temptation, isn't it? That's the, that's, maybe it is youth. I, 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 I don't know. But I am also recognizing the fact that I, I, you put it like I tried to battle the flesh with the flesh. Uh, very, very good. I saw a hand. I guess um, a lot of this boils down to this idea to be uh, like from Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. It says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your numbers as instruments of unrighteousness. I like that. I, um, you know, is is in talking about do not present your members and, and kind of how are you looking at things and, and boiling this down to the question of who am I going to serve, right? Like, and Paul kind of says you're going to serve something, right? Um, and it, it kind of really boils down, not boils down to, but leads us into this next question. How can we tell if the spirit resides in us? How do we know? And we kind of started to touch on that, like whether or not I present myself or bind myself to demonic things. What was the analogy he used with Nicodemus? How do I know what the spirit is? You know, the spirit, it's kind of like the wind. 
can't hold on to the wind, but you can see what the wind is doing, right? And it's the same for what, how the Spirit resides in us. Um, uh, in Matthew 7, it talks about, Watch out for false prophets who comes, come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are voracious wolves. You will recognize them by what? By the fruit. By their behavior. By what they produce. Right? It's the same for the Spirit. Because we have several scriptures that talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and I think it, this goes back to the, one of the things that I was thinking about is this idea of discernment. Like, okay, if I can recognize a false prophet by their fruits, um, I don't think it's difficult necessarily... I think, I think sometimes it's difficult for me to recognize outcomes. Like, if a Pharisee had said to me... <laughs> Hey, you know what? I think if we're going to give something to our parents, um, we can just tell them, you know what? I'm going to give it to God. That sounds like a pretty noble thing. I think I could have been deceived by that, right? And so this ability to discern brings me back to Hebrews 6, right? Like we need to be good judges of what is right and what is wrong. And how do we do that? How do we gain that ability? Hebrew writer says, the more that we exercise ourselves to learn what is right and wrong, that makes us good judges. And so for me, I feel like one area that I need to work on is how do I get better at when someone says something of a spiritual nature going, is that right or is that wrong? Because there's a lot of pharisaical things where I probably would have been like, that sounds reasonable, but it was totally missing the idea of what God had. And so how can we tell if the Spirit resides in us? We have to learn how to recognize right and wrong. Very good. I I did not expect for us to get through all of this. That's why I have the next two classes. So um, as well. So we're about to wrap it up. I'm probably going to open the next class, digging a little bit deeper into how do we become better discerners. That really is something that we need to be good at judging between what is good and what is evil. Uh, at the end of Hebrews five. Um, 
Solid food is for the mature whose perceptions are trained by practice to discern good and evil. I'm working on that. I think it's something that we all should work on, especially if we're supposed to tell who's right and who's wrong or who's false and who's true by what they do, right? By the fruit that they produce. So we're going to start, we're going to circle back at the next class starting there and we'll finish up questions four and five and then look hopefully at the end of uh, chapter eight. Thank you so much for your participation.